0: When I hit the ground, I rolled over, so I was lying on my side, so my face wasn't pushed into the ground. So if it had been, I would have really struggled to breathe. I was lucky because it was a warm, sunny day, because had I fallen off in the middle of winter and been lying on the ground like that for five and a half hours, I probably would have been hypothermic by the time they found me. And third, I was lucky to be found by fellow horse riders who saw a riderless horse with its tack on, thought that's a bit weird, came to investigate you know, along the track. Uh, and saw me. And I was also lucky that I was conscious when they found me. So I was able to say to them, don't move me. I've broken my neck. Call the air ambulance.
1: Hello, and welcome to Pivot Points, a podcast exploring the pivot points in people's lives, loves, losses,
2: and leadership. Each week, we take our guests on a retrospective, delving into their mindset, perspective, and choices at the time of their pivotal moments. and what they've taught them in the long run. We explore how the
1: good and the bad, happiness and deep sadness, success and failure are in fact inseparable, and we learn that real strength is born from hardship.
2: We're your hosts, Gabby Miller and Amelia Savall. We're both professional coaches, so in between recording podcasts, we can be found supporting our clients through their leadership and life challenges. Hello Amelia. Hi Gabby, how are you doing? Thanks. Tell me who we have got on today.
1: Well, you found this marvelous woman, Tara Stewart, who is currently promoting her fundraising work in spinal cord injury because of an accident she had back in 2014. And I mean, talk of the mother of all pivots that can happen to you. This is a perfectly healthy, running around, super busy woman. And in one fell swoop, that was it. Mm. And so... Absolutely fascinating to speak to her.
2: I agree. It is it is absolutely one of the biggest pivots we've had. She goes from being a fit and healthy woman to breaking her neck and becoming paraplegic in a second. And if you are going through a difficult time in your life at the moment, this is a story of physical, mental, emotional turmoil and pain and Mm. a way through
1: yeah of apoplectic proportions so dig in stay tuned and we will talk you through our thoughts at the end enjoy hello lovely to meet you tara
2: hi we just wanted to start off knowing a little bit about what your life was before all of this? Because it was 2014. Yes, right. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. That you had the accident?
0: Yes. Yeah, so background, a little bit about what what was I doing before I managed to fall off a horse? Um, and so I spent all my time on a, an aeroplane or a train. Basically, I had this crazy situation where I lived part in Yorkshire and part in London. I had two horses, one of which I was rehabbing, one of which I was competing, um, and a job that you know I had me sort of flying between London and Dublin and Paris. And it was perfectly possible. I did have one day, I remember posting on social media that I'd had breakfast in London, lunch in Dublin and dinner in Paris because I'd literally just been hopping between clients. So um, it was kind of crazy. It was really busy. I loved it. You know, I was also, I was very active, very sporty, uh, did a lot of running, obviously did a lot of riding, um, always went to the gym several times a week. You know, I was somebody who loved being outside and being active, that was really important to me and, and to my mental health and kind of kept me sane with this crazy career that I had.
1: So along comes 2014. What was life like at that moment?
0: Well, it was, it was pretty hectic and very busy uh, mm-hmm. and uh, very manic. And in many ways, I, I kind of wish I could kind of calm it down uh, so they will say, "Be careful what you wish for," don't they? Um, yeah, so that's kind of what life was like in 2014. But very active, and I was—I I had a horse who had uh, an operation for what they call kissing spine, and I was rehabbing him from that. And he was a very big eventing horse, uh, 17 hands, which is fairly large, and, and yeah, especially as I'm only only five foot five. And he was obviously still in pain and creating quite a few problems to ride. And we were rehabbing him really slowly. But I was at the point, July 2014, he was displaying quite a lot of pain issues. And I was coming to the conclusion that, you know, we weren't going to be able to carry on riding him, that we were going to have to retire him and, you know, that that we were going to have to do something slightly more, Major than just keep on riding him. I wasn't going to be able to do what I wanted. So that's where I was in July 2014 with him.
2: So I don't think we've had a pivot like yours before. It's it's physical, mental changes changes your whole life. So can you tell us about what happened and and that day? Yeah, of course. So it
0: was the 29th of July 2014. It was a gorgeous day. I woke up. The sun was shining. The birds were singing. And I had, because I was having problems with my horse, I had arranged to take both horses back down to a livery yard in London to get professional help with, uh, with him, with Vic, uh, as his name was. And I woke up that morning and it was the last day that I was going to ride them in Yorkshire before I took them back down to London. And of course, the big difference is that we have all this beautiful countryside around here for hacking, which we don't really have just outside London. So I wanted to take him out for a hack in the countryside and enjoy it. Now, Vic was always really tricky out hacking. He was very spooky anyway. And so I woke up that morning with a really bad feeling in my stomach. Uh, And I just I really did not want to hack him. And I thought, shall I do this? And then I thought, yeah, you know, I'm going to. I'm going to make myself do it, even though I know he's tricky, because it's my last chance to do this before before I go back to London. So I took him out on a hack and I deliberately took him there's a big hill just behind our house and my plan was that I would just take him for a canter up the hill uh, let him get a bit of a stretch uh, but obviously up a really steep hill like that he probably couldn't cause too much trouble uh, at least that's what I thought anyway so I off I set and uh, because we were about to go up a big hill I stood out of my up out of my stirrups and came forward to get off his back and I asked him to canter and he just he exploded bucking from the pain and because I was already out of the saddle, I didn't have a chance of staying on. Um, and also because I was already forward and up, when he bucked me off, I just came straight off his shoulder and landed directly on my head on the ground with the weight of my body behind me. Had I been sitting back up in the saddle, either he wouldn't have got me off or he would have had to throw me, you know, out of the saddle, you know, more violently. But I sort of just dropped off the shoulder like a like a dart basically straight down um and I tried to tuck my head and go into a roll as you do as a rider in those situations but I didn't have enough space uh, because I was already forward so I hit the ground head first and I heard this enormous crack and I was instantly paralyzed because I'd broken my neck um the weight of my body and on my head had just it had snapped my neck at c67 um, and it, it, as we discovered later, it dislocated 13 vertebrae above and below the break. So 13 in total. Um, but the, the dangerous bit is it bent my spinal cord into an S shape. And that's what paralyzes you. It's damaging the spinal cord, not breaking the vertebrae. They're just bones like anything else. But if you do something to your spinal cord, that is, that is serious. So I, was, uh, I hit the ground and I was instantly paralyzed from sort of the bottom of my neck down. And you knew this straight away? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, you know, as a rider, you are aware of the dangers uh, of riding horses. Um, and you accept those dangers if you have that passion. And yeah, I knew exactly what I'd done. I was paralysed. I couldn't move. I'd heard the crack. I, I knew exactly what I'd done. Yeah.
1: So what goes through your mind then?
0: Well, I, I think it... What's weird is you have these two parts of your brain that sort of process Mm. information in a different way. So there's the logical cold part of your brain that's going, well, you've broken your neck, well done you. Uh, You've paralysed yourself. You're now lying on the ground. Uh, And then you start making calculations about, you know, how long it might take for somebody to find you, whether they know where you are, what you can do to help yourself. You know, can you call out? uh, Will the horse go back home and let people know that you've fallen off somewhere? um can you reach your phone the answer to which was no because i was lying on my left hand side with my left arm trapped underneath me and my phone was in my pocket so i couldn't and i couldn't move so i couldn't get to it um and then there's the limbic part of your brain which is basically gibbering with fear and going this is not happening to me and wants to just scream and shout and cry and and you know panic basically and so both of those things are happening at the same time in your head and I remember making the decision not to panic. I remember my conscious brain almost telling my limbic brain, like, you can panic, but it's not going to do you any good. You're having problems breathing anyway. You can't shout very loudly because, you know, my intercostal muscles and my diaphragm have been paralysed. So I was I was not doing well at breathing. Um, and you can't move. You've tried that. You know that if you thrash about, you know, lifting your head around, you're only going to make this injury worse. So you're just going to have to lie here as still as you can and wait for somebody to find you. And somebody will find you eventually, but who knows how long that's going to take. So it's a bizarre combination. And the other thing you get, of course, is this, this huge level of reality, I think, when something like this happens to you, because there's also a part of you going, I, I don't believe this is happening. Literally, this just seems like it's yeah, real. of course. This can't be happening, but it is happening and you know it's happening. So you're just trying to deal with, All of that stuff, like circulating in in your head as well. And it
1: was a while before you were discovered.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I was I was on the ground for five and a half hours before I was found. Yeah. So I mean, it didn't. You know, to be fair, that sounds quite dramatic, and everybody goes, "Ooh, ooh, that's a very long time." I I didn't realize it was that long because I was drifting in and out of consciousness. So uh, if you'd asked me, I would have told you it was probably a couple of hours. But yeah, it, it was actually five and a half before I was found.
1: And then what happens after that? I mean, a whole plethora of things have to happen to you for you to even
0: be here today. So, so what happened next? Yeah, I mean, so basically I was, I was found by some fellow horse riders who came along the track that I'd been riding on and, and, and saw my horse, actually, because he stayed with me. He's, he stood beside me for five and a half hours, which in itself is remarkable because he could have easily gone home. Um, and they saw a rideless horse. So I was really lucky from that point of view. I, felt I, was, I was lucky from a couple of different points of view. When I hit the ground, I rolled over. So I was lying on my side. So my face wasn't pushed into the ground. So if it had been, I would have really struggled to breathe. So I was lucky from that point of view. Um, I was lucky because it was a warm, sunny day. Because had I fallen off in the middle of winter and been lying on the ground like that for five and a half hours, I probably would have been hypothermic by the time they found me. Um, And that wouldn't have done me any good. Um, And third, I was lucky to be found by fellow horse riders who saw a riderless horse with its tack on, standing in a field, thought that's a bit weird, came to investigate, you know, along the track uh, and saw me. And I was also lucky that I was conscious when they found me. So I was able to say to them, don't move me. I've broken my neck. Call the air ambulance. You're going to need to call the air ambulance because you won't be able to get an ordinary Ambulance into this into this track to to, to pick me up, uh, and also that I was also conscious enough to give them my phone number, and that they could call you know my house and alert people as well. So you know all of those things meant that uh, when the air ambulance arrived, it arrived with a spinal consultant on board, and they knew what they were dealing with. So I mean, the, the air ambulances are, are amazing, um, and I always make the point of telling people in these situations that they are they are all charities. And they rely on public donations to fly. So, um, you know, if you can support your local air ambulance because it needs you and they are amazing. So they're like, they're, they arrive like little mini hospitals, like the precursor of the hospital, and they can do so much to, you know, to stabilize and to help before they actually take you to hospital. So, uh, yes, yeah, so they arrive with a spinal consultant on board already. Um, meaning that when they got to me, they knew exactly exactly what to do with me. So I was stabilised. Um, and then they flew me uh, to James Cook Hospital in Middlesbrough. Um, and uh, there they obviously x-rayed me and kind of went, oh, yes, bit of a mess. Um, and so they knew that the first thing they wanted to do was to straighten my spinal cord out as much as they could before they stabilised it. Um, so they put me in traction overnight. Um, and then... The following morning, a whole team, a neurosurgeon and a whole team of, of sort of, you know, experts pieced me back together like a jigsaw. Um, and that took eight hours. Uh, it involved me having a blood transfusion. I lost four pints of blood. Uh, it, you know, it's a dicey operation. They, I have a huge scar on the back of my neck. It's so about sort of goes halfway down my back because they, they wanted to just go in from the back and stabilize me and put a metal cage around my spine to kind of get everything fixed together. Uh, But they actually had to go in through the front, so I have a scar here on the front of my neck too because I had to get in through the front because it was such a mess inside and basically put me back together again like a jigsaw. Um, So that took eight hours, and then after which, unfortunately, when you operate on or around the spinal cord, it can create more swelling and more trauma. Um, So I went into the operation able to kind of move my arms and breathe on my own, albeit restrictedly, and I came out of the operation on a ventilator, completely unable to breathe on my own, unable to move anything below my neck. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so then I spent two weeks in intensive care and an induced coma on a ventilator, which is not a pleasant experience. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Um, and then I had to spend four weeks in high dependency being weaned off the ventilator slowly, still under very close super- medical supervision because I was obviously very, very vulnerable. And then... I had a couple of weeks in, a, in, a, in the spinal unit, and then I was transferred to uh, another spinal unit to do six months of rehab before I was packed off home. So quite a process, nine months in hospital in total, yeah. How long was it that you were completely paralysed? I was completely paralysed. Probably I started to get the movement in my arms back. So if you like, the sort of shock of the operation and everything started wearing off probably about a, a month after. Gosh and then my hands slowly started to recover so i was able to sort of move both of my arms my my, my right arm was very very weak so I, I i frequently actually hit myself in the face so i try and reach something and i I'd, I'd put my right because i am right-handed or i was and i put my right arm up and look i wasn't actually strong enough to hold it in the air and then my arm would fall back and smack <laughs> me <laughs> so i actually ended up punching myself in the face which was deeply irritating um so I left hospital, you know, stronger than I was and able to move more than I was directly after the operation. But I do a lot of physio to get to the movement I have now. So, you know, at, at, we're talking at least an hour to two, three hours a day of different physio to try and get stronger and, and kind of, you know, move as much as I can.
1: I'm curious what that time like, looks like. How the doctors speak to you. I'm, I'm intrigued to understand what mind games your limbic system tells yeah. you, what that the chimp is yeah. let loose, and you go into that because you go into that operation with working arms, at least, and then to come out without working arms. I mean, where does your head go?
0: Well, I think for me, the first month I was as high as a kite. So, I mean, you know, basically, I didn't know which way it was up. I, I couldn't have told you my name. Uh, for two weeks of that month, I was, was, you know, experiencing horrendous hallucinations in an induced coma, thought I'd been buried alive. I've had um, conversations with other people who've been in their own induced comas. And I, I, I have talked to various people to say, it is important to understand that the general assumption is that when you're in an induced coma, you know nothing about it. And I think some people don't, but I was definitely not unconscious. So I was not always—I mean, there were times when I was, you know, completely not there. But for a lot of it, I was conscious. I knew that I couldn't move. I knew that I—I I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. I couldn't hear any. I could hear things, but not very well. And I—I um, I thought I'd been buried alive. So I was. My brain was like conscious and processing enough to go, "Have I died? Is—is is this it?" um have I been buried alive and this is what it's like and then also I distinctly remember this and again I I will caveat that I was on a lot of drugs but my brain was going nobody really knows what happens when we die so what if what if this what if this is it and how long do I do I spend eternity like lying here like knowing that I'm you know not able to do anything is this and it, it was terrifying and that prospect you know, honestly, you'd rather you'd rather be, there was nothing. If there's a choice between feeling trapped for the, forever and, and nothing, you know, I I actually thought I'd I'd rather be dead, dead, if that makes any sense. So, yeah, I was terrifying. And then what would happen was they they would take the drugs down, and I would become conscious again. So I'd sort of resurface like a swimmer coming out of a lake of blackness to find myself in a hospital ward, going, "What the hell just happened?" Uh, and then I get put back under again. I get plunged back into the water again. So it was, yeah, it was not a pleasant experience. So you know, for the vast majority of it, the least of my worries was the fact I couldn't move anything. That, that I was just trying to work out whether I was dead or not, and, and work out why I couldn't breathe and get air. That was so your your world contracts. You know, in extremists like that, your world contracts to the very simplest things. And the simplest thing for me was I just wanted to be able to take a lungful of air. I just wanted to be able to breathe in, I couldn't. Um, and I did not think about anything else in those in that situation. And it took, you know, a while until I was kind of conscious, and they'd taken me off those drugs. And I wasn't receiving vast quantities of morphine before I started to think again, like, a I guess, like a normal person and start worrying about practical things like, could I move my hands? Or what was my recovery like? So yeah, it, it was at least sort of, six weeks after the accident before I even I even really understood what had happened to me because I couldn't speak. Nobody nobody could I couldn't talk to anybody because I had all these tubes down my my you know down my throat. And you can't speak with that because you need air flowing over your voice box to talk. So I couldn't make myself understood. I couldn't ask any questions. They put this thing in when they when they they gave me a, a speaking valve in the tracheostomy um stain with a hole in the neck which allows you to do some talking before they take all the tubes and everything out permanently. Um, And that was my first opportunity to go, what happened? And for my mother to tell me, you know, that I'd been in a coma, that I'd been in intensive care, that it was six weeks later, I kind of lost, you know, nearly a month of my life. So yeah, very confusing. And then to answer your first question, which was a sort of very long answer in between, you know, what did they say to me? It's difficult here because different consultants have different approaches. But, you know, as far as I was concerned, at my first hospital, they were quite sympathetic. At my second, they were brutal. So uh, I did have this situation where uh, the, the, my consultant came into the physio room and I was sitting on a plinth trying to do some physio and stood, didn't say hello to me, walked in, stood with his back to me, sort of three feet away. I had this sort of little group of junior doctors that he briefed on my accident and my everything else. And when he got to the end of that, one of them said to him, uh, will she ever walk again? And he answered without turning around or talking to me, no, this one has no hope of recovery. And that was, you know, that was kind of how we were treated. Who are these people? Um, and and, and I, I, you know, for me, my response was to get really, really angry. I was really angry. Um, and I thought, right, I, I know, I, I know that prospects aren't good, but... I'm I'm going to work really hard to get as much recovery as I can. Looking at it now with the benefit of hindsight and uh, trying to be as fair as possible, I think, you know, the kind of trauma that consultants like that see every day is difficult to process unless you harden yourself against it. So I can see why they can come quite dispassionate and view us as medical things rather than people. But what I would say is, and I, and I also understand the logic in not giving false hope. You know, I, people need to come to terms with what has happened to them. It's a very difficult thing to process. But the sooner they process it and deal with it, the quicker they can kind of move through and move on. If they keep on dwelling in what-ifs or, you know, silly cures, then they're never going to get anywhere. But there is a big difference between false hope and no hope. And to me, as a spinal cord injured patient, what I saw was that that kind of brutal approach killed hope. And it's very difficult in this situation to motivate yourself. It's difficult enough to motivate yourself to go to the gym if you're a normal person. But to motivate yourself to go to the gym when you're paralysed, very, very difficult. And if somebody says to you, you'll never recover you'll never gain anything you're not, it's just, you, you just think to yourself well what's the point what is the point and, and the point is that you know at the very least the more you do to look after yourself the less you're going to suffer from many of the physical issues that stalk people in wheelchairs like pressure sores or you know um blood clots or anything like that um and it, it's it's really important that you you do your physio. So if you just sit in a chair and do nothing, you know it's not going to do you in, any good. And also, you know, if you're going to be really hopeful about spinal cord injury, and and I am, then the better shape you keep yourself in, uh, the better it will be for you when therapies arrive on the scene, as and when they do, and they are coming through on the technological side and the and the research side. So yeah, I don't think it's helpful to take away, and it's just, it's an awful thing to do to people, to take away hope is just cruel.
2: It's so interesting that you say that, because when I was thinking about recording this with you today, I feel like in in most medical situations, there is hope, and with spinal cord injuries, it feels so binary, and you're absolutely right in what you say, hope is, is a is a coping mechanism, it's interesting how the medical profession don't seem to, or or it's not talked about enough. Yeah. That, why do we think this is it? If you
0: break it. And also, it's about how you talk to people about, even if it is it, how you present that. I mean, I I know of one young guy uh, who had a similar injury to mine and he took himself to and and, and, you know, ended his life because the doctors gave him no hope and and he just couldn't bear it. You know, the, the idea of his life without any recovery at all was so bleak that he killed himself. And, you know, depression is incredibly rife against spinal cord injury people. And, and so, you know, that the other thing is, is having psychological support both for patients and for staff, actually, I would say, but, you know, having that support because I think probably the hardest adjustment you have to do is the mental one because you know you see you see people I mean I was watching a documentary a, a while ago um about somebody with a spinal cord injury and one of the people they talked to was was clearly stuck in this world where she couldn't move on from what she used to be and and you've got to you have to acceptance is the first step you you've got to wrap your head around the fact that you know what you were like has gone, and you are now like this. And then, what are you going to do about that going forward? And not keep looking back the whole time and kind of trying to be as you were because that's not going to be possible.
1: How did you get to acceptance, and how do you maintain acceptance?
0: <laughs> well, I, th- I think the thing is is that I I was always raised to be very pragmatic and to take things on the chin. So for me, acceptance, you know, I accepted what had happened from the moment I heard the crack of my neck breaking. Um, And I, you know, I knew what the implications of that were. I'm not one to sort of gonna go, and I I, I just, you know, I'm very much, it is what it is. That is very much an attitude I have. So there's no point in wishing it were different. There's no point in playing the what if game. There's no point in living in a little fantasy land where you kind of go, well, you know, what if I wasn't like this? There's no point because you just go, this is what has happened. And therefore, what am I going to do about that? And I think it did help that I'd always been, you know, very active and loved my sport and and stuff. So I focused on my physio. I focused on doing what I could to drive as much recovery as I could. And that's where I put my determination and then the other thing that obviously hugely helped me and uh, I, and I remain eternally grateful for is I have fantastic friends and fantastic family and that support network absolutely kicked in for me so I was in hospital for nine months and I think there were only two days where I didn't have visitors come to see me um my parents and my husband were amazing they came every day between them um and lots of other friends and family came to see me and you really appreciate, you know, in this situation, one of the good things to come out of it is to realise how much you have people who love and care about you. And that's an amazing life-affirming thing.
2: I wanted to ask what the kind of reality of life is now like, you know, seven years on.
0: First and foremost, I came out of hospital and the f- coming out of hospital is really difficult because... It's set up for you in a chair. So all the, you know, everything's flat. The doors all open. You know, the the loser will have space for a wheelchair. Everything is easy in comparison. And then you come out in the real world. And the first thing that happens for a lot of people in chairs is that they can't go home because their homes are completely unsuitable for getting a wheelchair in. They don't have a lift. They can't get upstairs. There's not enough room to the doors. So a lot of people end up having to sell their houses often at a loss. To find somewhere to live. And for me, I think mentally it was the hardest thing. Coming home to a place where uh, you know nine months before I had been a perfectly able, extremely active, fit, you know, person, busy person. And now I'm in that same environment and the environment is exactly the same, and I have changed beyond all recognition. And, And fitting those two clashing worlds together is extremely difficult mentally. But it it took at least a year, maybe more, for me to kind of mentally recover enough to concentrate on something. So the the other thing that can happen to you, and I think it's been reported a lot in the papers with the COVID situation, is literal uh, sort of mental impairment that comes from being in intensive care on a ventilator in a coma, that it scrambles your brain. Um, And certainly, I did worry when I first came out of hospital. I, I didn't know about the intensive care thing. So I did wonder whether I had some kind of brain damage from landing on my head. Although I didn't, you know, my, my thought processing ability, my ability, to, I was hopeless at remembering anything. So I sort of, I was fairly useless for about a year <laughs> where well, I sort of floated around, not really doing anything actually, trying to work out, you know, how to do physio at home, where I was going to go, find anywhere that could help me. But then I think you start to pick stuff up and you start to become sort of more like yourself. Um, And from that, I started picking stuff up. So uh, one of the first things I did was I wanted to raise money for Spinal Research and for the Yorkshire Air Ambulance. So my father's an artist, so we hatched a plan to produce a run of limited edition prints, racehorse prints. And I also did greetings cards. Um, And I set up a website, which is um, www.buckinghorses.co.uk called Bucking Horses for an obvious reason, (laughs) being bucked off a horse. Um, And on that, I I launched that and um, I did some PR through the Yorkshire Air Ambulance and I got into some of the papers. And I also started writing a blog about my accident. Uh, That actually only started about a year or so ago. Again, that's on, on the website. Uh, written with very dark humour, which was my way of coping. So I based it, when I was in hospital, uh, one of my coping techniques was to tweet, actually. I couldn't, because my hands were still bad, I couldn't type things out, but I could tap out, you know, with one knuckle, 140 characters as it was then. Um, and so I did a lot of tweeting with very dark humour and, and that gave me a sort of framework for, reminded me of what had happened in various points in hospital. So I started writing a blog from that. Um, I also decided to train as a coach, as I talked about at the beginning. Uh, And I also set up a business with a friend of mine um, to look into improving safety in riding um, and what we can kind of do to to help with that. So those are the things that I'm currently juggling at the moment to keep myself busy.
2: One of the things I'm thinking about as you're talking is, We all play, as you call it, the what if game, like we catastrophize, we think, you know, what's going to happen if I lose my job? What's going to happen if? I'm wondering if you did that sort of thing beforehand and what this incident has taught you about playing that and, you know, trying to play out the future that we really don't have control over.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it because as, as you're talking, there are there are two versions of the what-if game, and I haven't thought about that before. There's the what-if future game and the what-if past game. So so I was I was referring to the what-if past game as in, what if I hadn't decided to ride the horse that day? What if I had listened to that terrible feeling in my stomach and that would have been useful? And, you know, what if I hadn't X, Y, Z? Um, and my, my line on that is pointless. What's done is done. And you can drive yourself insane playing the what-if past game. I think the what if future game can be played two ways. It can be played in a catastrophizing way, as in what if I lose my job or what if I la-la-la. You can make that slightly useful by perhaps prepping yourself. If you're the kind of person who kind of worries about stuff, you go, well, what if the worst did happen? What would I do? Have a plan. Um, and, And that, I think, can help you with that. Go, well, all right, I'm ready. If the worst thing does happen, this is what I'll do. And then put it aside, move on with your life. Um, But you can also play the what if future game in a hopeful way. What if great things happen? What if I'm able to help somebody else? What if I did this? What would be the result of that? And I I once read this thing on an Instagram post and it it said just simply, why not you? Why not you? Why couldn't you do something amazing? Why couldn't you be the person who changes stuff? You know, and, and what's the harm in trying from that point of view? So. Yeah, I think so. Two or even three, if you like, versions of the What If game. You can't change a character in a nature. If you're a worrier, you're going to worry. So find a way of, of dealing with it. So, yeah, work out what's the worst thing that could happen and what's your plan if it does. And Gosh, I think you've just written your next blog there. Such <laughs> an incredible observation. What would you say, if,
1: if we were comparing and contrasting who you were before and who you
0: are now... What comes up for you? Since my accident, I have become both more and less tolerant, I think I would say. So I have become more understanding of pain and of grief and of loss because I have now experienced it. And so I'm I'm much more what I call marshmallowy. So, you know, things move me to tears. I'm much more sensitive, much more raw to emotion and experience probably than I was before. Um, And and I guess that's the difference between sympathy and empathy, isn't it? That you really feel people's pain now because you've experienced your own pain. But on the other hand, I'm also less tolerant. I'm also much less tolerant of the daily faff of life or people worrying about stuff that doesn't matter. And that doesn't mean I'm not considerate towards the fact that they're worried, but I don't have a lot of time for people who kind of moan about the little things and you kind of go really, you you need to get some perspective on that. So I'm less tolerant of, Putting up with crap, I think I would say. Um, and uh, and I'm also, you know, the, the drive that I had before is now focused in a different way on the fundraising that I'm trying to do or my physio or whatever it is, or, or even just getting through the frustrations of daily life if you're in a wheelchair.
2: What are the kind of, because you're so positive and pragmatic in how you talk about it but what are the daily struggles that you've got to get through now
0: well I think that the, the major um, what everything takes so long everything's so slow I mean it, it's really difficult you know to to understand having had you know having lived most you know all my life until now as a normal person uh in, in not in a wheelchair um it's really difficult to understand how crazy it is to be in a chair so for example if I am trying to close a door then I have to I, I can't just close the door because I'm in the way because the wheelchair's in the way so I've got to move the door an inch and then I've got to move back an inch and I'll lean forward and move the door another inch and i move back another inch and so just doing something like closing a door can take you know five minutes and then you go backwards and the wheelchair isn't straight so you've got to straighten yourself up again it, it everything takes so long um, and it's particularly slow for me because obviously I don't have the use of my hands. So as you can see on the camera, I've got you know, my hands on this one's not too bad, but this one's doesn't really work. So I did once get asked in a live interview on television, uh, would it be useful to have the use, You know, to, would it be useful to have your hands back? <laughs> i don't know quite what my face does oh, but i i'm sorry you're a consultant uh, anywhere because uh you know, yeah hello, uh, is, <laughs> you're the chief science correspondent what do you think oh my god yeah i was literally like you know as opposed to thumbs as well as the size of our brains have made us the dominant species in the world do you think it would be useful to happen but yeah <laughs> just a bit so uh, yeah so again that's hugely i mean there's a massive difference between tetraplegics and paraplegics tetra is all four limbs are affected uh, and if you can't use your hands just uh, just imagine you know how would you put your clothes on how would you feed yourself dress feed yourself open door you can't you can't do anything um and obviously i do have some use of my hands but they are impaired so so life is slow and difficult and frustrating and really annoying
1: can you tell me a bit about um because you continue to fundraise there's some really incredible research happening around spinal cord injury and paralysis. Really great steps being made. Could you tell us how people can help you and fundraise with you?
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be delighted. So I chose Spinal Research as the charity that I wanted to uh, fundraise because, because personally for me, they their function is to... To cure paralysis, to find therapies to mitigate and, and cure paralysis, as opposed to help those who are in chairs kind of cope with life, and that's a, a hugely you know valuable thing as well. But my I wanted to make myself feel better by thinking about the future, and. Uh, spinal Research is the UK's largest uh, spinal cord injury charity and they are funding lots of different types of research all over the world and there are various areas that they are looking at. Now, for example, they are looking at the use of an enzyme called chondroitinase, which breaks down the scar tissue that builds up around the spinal cord and impairs recovery. So they are looking at the use of that in repairing some of the damage that happens in a spinal cord injury. And... Um, they're looking at different ways of getting it into the spinal cord without causing further damage etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, another area that they're obviously looking at is is the use of stem cell uh, therapy to help repair spinal cords and uh, one of the areas that they are also looking at uh, and that they are now around the world in different places so the US Switzerland in the UK uh, in clinical trials with human beings which is you know pretty far down the line is neuromodulation. Uh, which I, in my unscientific way, think of as kind of like jump-starting a car battery. Uh, It is effectively putting electrical stimulation into the spinal cord to to, to basically reactivate it uh, and sort of kind of prompt it into kind of finding new function or finding a way around the the lesion, whatever it is. But uh, that is something that can be done. Uh, So the use of spinal implants uh, has been used for many years, actually, to help with pain and other back problems. And so that, that kind of technology was adapted. Um, and they now have a situation where they can do the, the, the neuromodulation both through the skin and with an implant. But obviously through the skin is much cheaper, it's less risky. And there have been a number of studies carried out on that. So there was one done in Switzerland fairly recently um, where they actually had so much success in getting participants sort of standing up and stepping that they start, they didn't aim, they didn't start aiming to try and get anybody walking over ground but they actually managed to get people so uh, and and i caveat when I when i say walking people aren't leaping out of their chairs and kind of running around going woohoo but they are able you know with aids with with crutches or with a walker to start taking some steps so you know and they're seeing that in the u.s as well um and you know stuff like that is coming through but the big problem we have is that there is so little awareness of spinal cord injury and what awareness there is the fundraising for it is is hampered because people think it's incurable and they think there's no point and that's not true there are amazing therapies amazing things coming through and the thing that is stopping them getting into human clinical trials and then getting into clinical practice is a is a lack of money and i think that the the thing that i would say is first of all you know is the realization that a spinal cord injury can happen to anybody at any time And the vast majority of them are not caused by sporting accidents like mine. In fact, you know, I think it's 12% of spinal cord injuries are caused by people doing things like falling off mountain bikes or dropping off cliffs or something like that. The vast majority of spinal cord injuries are caused by accidents, car accidents and things like falling off steps or falling down the stairs. And we all get in cars and go up and down stairs every day. Every single day in the United Kingdom, three people get a spinal cord injury and are told that they'll, they'll never oh. walk again. So, you know, I, I was in hospital. There was one lady in my ward. She had gone to a hotel. You know how they zip the beds together in hotels and the beds had separated and she had fallen between them and that had given her a spinal cord injury. You know, oh. there was another uh, lady who had literally slipped off the bottom step of her boyfriend's stairs and broken her back and another one who had tripped over a cat and gone down the stairs, fallen down the stairs. It is really easy to get a spinal cord injury. And in a fraction of a second, your life can completely change in a way that you just, you know. So I think it's an area that, it, 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 you know, for people to, to... Well, two things, really, from that. It's, first of all, to raise awareness of the fact that it can happen to anybody. and And from that, that, you know, when you see people in wheelchairs, we're not different. We're not, you know... We, we're like you, we just broke something you know, that, that, that meant that it paralyzed us, but we're still just the same in many ways. And I think also the great thing about funding uh, research into repair of the spinal cord is that if we find a way to help neurological impairments and to repair them, that has huge implications for many other neurological things like multiple sclerosis, like recovering from a stroke, like motor neuron disease. So advancements we can make in this field will have an, a, you know, an advantage uh, to, for many people, will help many, many people. So that's why I'm so passionate about raising awareness, why I talk about my accident, talk about you know, what's happened to me. Because I think you know, people, people are wonderful. They, they really want to help, but they don't know how. And I think what I would say is that you know, if you can, consider spinal research as something that you might you know, donate to and, and help with. and. And and, and be aware that even the smallest improvements can make a massive difference. You know, if I got 20% of the movement back in my right hand, that would transform my life in a chair. So it's not about perhaps leaping to your feet and running around. You know, there are lots of other things from from where I am now to that. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to do and, and raise awareness and money for. How can people get in touch and support you? Um, well they can the easiest thing probably to do is uh, to go to the spinal research website so that's www.spinalresearch.org, and there's more information on there you can read about research therapies that they are doing you can read a bit more about spinal cord injury but also most importantly you can donate directly to them that's probably the fastest way to to, to go straight to spinal research and that would be fantastic
1: We've got buckinghorse.co.uk, so we know where to buy our art from.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. So if you would like to buy a print, uh, unframed or framed, or just some greetings cards, uh, and that will help Spine Research and the Yorkshire Air Ambulance, um, and also the Great North Air Ambulance. And there's also my blog, A Fox Lake, on there, which is, uh, as I say, lots of dark humour, uh, but blogging about my experience in hospital. And I'm slowly working my way out of hospital, and then I'll get on to life outside of hospital.
2: Oh Tara this has been so eye-opening really and um, fascinating to hear about and you're truly the most resilient. I hate to use that word because I feel like it's so overused but you really are. You have just endless resilience.
1: I think your work is incredible. We will support you any way we can. Thank you. Thank you.
2: I mean, Amelia, I'm speechless. She is, she's rather just, yeah, see? (laughs) (laughs) She's extraordinary. Yes,
1: yes, that is the word. It's kind of given me like goosebumps and chills and kind of a, a very physical reaction. She's kind of, maybe she's one of the guests that has had the most monumental pivot that literally could happen to any single one of us. So any one of
2: us could be in her wheelchair right now. Absolutely, and how to adjust to a life that is so unrecognizable. What was your big takeaway? There's a big difference between false hope and no hope.
1: Where is that divide actually between false hope and no hope?
2: It's a really interesting question. I agree because hope is a coping strategy. It's something that pulls us through the dark times. And so what do you do when the medical professions or just everything you know about a situation tells you there is no hope? You have to find it within yourself. And that takes incredible strength of character. Well,
1: especially when, really speaking, until I spoke to her, spinal cord injury equals... Paralysis for life. Yeah. Like, that was a known fact for me Mm. going into this conversation. And
2: here I am, everything's turned on its head. There is hope. Absolutely. And it's like, why shouldn't there be hope? Like, why did we think there was this area of medicine that is hopeless Mm. when we're making strides in so many areas? Yeah. Next up for me was around the
1: what-if game. Because, oh, that's a fun one to play, isn't it? In your (laughs) 2am ruminations. What if that hadn't happened? What if this happens? You know, that that past and future what-if game that we play and the difference between catastrophizing and feelings of hope and amazingness about the what-ifs ahead of us. I just thought that was an excellent way of summarizing anxiousness Worry. We've spoken yeah. before about worry and what a yeah. waste of time it is and yet it's a yeah. human condition.
2: Well it's unfortunate that we stopped recording and then she mm. said something really profound. Lesson learned Gavi and Amelia. But she said something around we have a choice. You know, it was her talking about there was people in the Holocaust, there were those who lived and there were those who didn't die. And, and that for me speaks of the choice we have. And it really stood out to me in that moment where she talked about before her accident, that morning, having that gut feeling of don't go and ignoring it and going. I'm sure there are dark moments when she ruminates on that, but that isn't part of her narrative and story now. And she didn't go there. And I thought that's really remarkable because it is quite natural to think why didn't i not listen to myself why didn't i go to the doctor earlier why didn't i trust my feeling before i did that Mm -hmm. i mean what what that is energy wasted and i felt she was really again remarkable in that she didn't do that that her energy is purely spent on moving forward
1: She also said another incredibly interesting thing after we stopped recording, so I feel like I need to bring these in. Um, You can't help what happens.
0: Mm.
1: Fact. You can help how you react. And she said that is everyone's superpower. Mm. The choice in how you react a choice as you said as she said you were saying you choose to live you choose what you where you go next you choose what you want to do with where you are now morning
2: absolutely and I hope that if you are struggling with something at the moment this episode gives you hope and also to remember that this happened to her in 2014 we are seven years on And there's a lot of processing that will have gone on in that time. And so, you know, everything is a process. I think something that I was reflecting on afterwards is like, God, she's incredible. And it's, you know, I don't want to undermine what this must have really been like. You know, she's choosing to now speak about this. I don't think she has done. She was saying this is the second podcast she's done. And she's just starting to write a blog on it now. It's like this is when she feels ready.
1: I hope there's an awful lot more. As she was saying, the research is going to affect so many different areas of science, the, the way that we live our lives in so many different ways. So I'll certainly be uh, donating and finding ways to help Absolutely. the cause for sure.
2: We we'll have put all the links to... Um, tara's website where you can buy the art the charities that she is supporting in the show notes and please please do donate
1: we will see you next week for a coach approach and in a couple of weeks with another guest bye Bye.
2: if you like the episode please rate review and subscribe you can follow us on Instagram at Podcast, Twitter at pivotpoints1, or email us on pivotpointspod at gmail.com.
1: And if you want to work with us, we are Gabby Miller and Amelia Sabawal, and our details are all in the show notes. See you next
2: time. Bye. Bye.